Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors podcast. My name is Anurag Rana, and I'm a technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Dana Rao as our guest today, who's the chief trust officer of Adobe. We look forward to chatting with Dana about the rise of AI and the work Adobe is doing to be a trusted partner as enterprises look to embrace this technology. Now, before we jump into question, you know, I, I, I go back and, uh, you know, mention that uh, uh, I've followed Adobe for a long time, uh, close to 20 years. And I, and I say this to clients quite a bit that, you know, if I was to disappear for 10 years and come back, I, you know, in the software space, I plan to only see about three, four products. And one of them, I think, is going to be Microsoft's Office Suite. And the other two products I often say is, you know, Photoshop and, and, and PDF. So, okay. so there's a lot of stability, I would say, in Adobe compared to almost every company that I've followed for so many years. So, Dana, let's uh, start with a little bit of a background of how you started with Adobe and what drew you to the legal world and your current role as uh, Adobe's chief trust officer. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. We, uh, yeah, so I started off as an electrical engineer undergraduate. I, my dad was the chairman of electrical engineering at Villanova University. And so he said that I could do whatever I wanted as long as it was electrical engineering. And, uh, and he said I could go to any school I wanted as long as I went to Villanova because it was free. So uh, I did that. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed math. I enjoyed English too, but I really liked understanding the why and how things worked part of engineering. I, I enjoyed understanding that. I was not very good at the technical side of fixing things. You, if you want something fixed, you would ask my wife to fix it. You would not ask me to fix it. So I joined uh, GE Astrospace after that, became an RF engineer uh, designing uh, satellites for about a year and a half and, and really uh, enjoyed the team environment, enjoyed working at GE, but realized that long-term that probably wasn't the place to maximize my skills. <laughs> and uh, so I moved to California. I thought about getting residency for graduate school, but I volunteered on the Clinton-Gore campaign in 1992. Um, and I hadn't really been involved in politics before, so it was very eye-opening to learn about how a campaign works and about the votes and the marketing and to voters and, and, and the policy issues. And I ended up actually becoming I volunteered at becoming the deputy director of the state of California for women's issues. So I got to work on women's issues, the state of California, and got to host some coffees and get the vote out and talk about the, the issues that mattered the most to the, to the women in California, which was a lot of fun and obviously quite different than anything I had been trained to do at the time. But I enjoyed it. And I thought, wow, this could be another career for me. Uh, I ended up going to moving to Washington, D.C. as a political appointment to the Department of Justice. I worked under Attorney General Janet Reno working on Native American issues. And again, it was a policy issue. As some people may know, the Department of Justice has criminal and civil jurisdiction over all the Indian tribes in, the, in America, which means they have a lot of say over the Indian tribes. And so what, what, what Attorney General Reno did, who's, who's one of my heroes, um, was very interested in making sure we had the Indian tribe's perspective on the issues of the law. And so she start, we started an office, an office of tribal justice within the Department of Justice, still there to this day, um, that is there to advocate legally for the um, rights of the American Indian tribes um, at the Department of Justice. So it was great. I really enjoyed um, that side, the policy side, and, and understanding the impact you could have, the federal government could have on the lives of everyday people. And then I felt like, well, again, I'm probably not exactly qualified to be at the Department of Justice because I don't have a legal degree. So uh, I decided to go get my law degree at GW. Um, and then I um, worked at a law firm. And then I was at Microsoft for 11 years, um, working in their IP group um, as a lawyer. and. Uh, and then I moved over to Adobe, um, became their head of IP and litigation, uh, and five years ago became general counsel. 
um, in 2018. And so really, I love what I love most about my job is be, the ability to bring this sort of technology angle, right, from my electrical engineering days and just the ability to dig into how things work and the policy side, which I, you know, had that baptism under the Department of Justice and, and, and working for the campaign and the legal side, which I love bringing those together into one team here at Adobe, which we've referred to as the, I'm the chief trust officer because we have uh, we have law, we have compliance, we have the security engineering teams, we have cybersecurity, we have privacy, and we have public policy. So we feel, feels very cool to have all those pieces together in one organization to help Adobe really shape the world that it's trying to, to live in. No, that's awesome. It's really, really, really impressive. You know, one of the things we focus on quite a bit on our podcast are disruptors. And uh, as I said, I've followed Adobe for over 20 years now, and it is truly one of the, uh, you know, the most amazing disruptors in the tech space. For, for those people who don't know the story as well, can you please give us an idea as to what are the key growth drivers of Adobe uh, as you look at for the next few years? Absolutely. I mean, as you already said, like we're a, we're a Silicon Valley success story, you know, 40 years old invented transformative technologies like PostScript, which enabled everybody to print for the first time, right? From any PC to any printer. And then Photoshop and Acrobat with PDF and Flash with Macromedia, as you mentioned. And then we moved into the digital marketing space through our acquisition amateur. So what I love about Adobe and why I think this podcast is great is that we've always been disrupting ourselves, right? We've always looked ahead and said, what is the next thing that's coming? And that's why we're still around and relevant as ever at 40 years into it. We just announced and are announcing um, really cool products right now that we, we think are disruptive. We recently launched a product called Adobe Express, and that's our real first foray into reaching consumers and, and, and small businesses with the creative tools that all the professionals have, right? How do it, and that's really exciting that people of any skill create social graphics, TikTok videos, and if that's still going to be allowed, uh, web pages and uh, of any kind, right? I mean, it's 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 really an exciting opportunity for Adobe to reach that next billion customers, not just the professionals who've used our tools for so long. So really excited about that opportunity. But the the most exciting thing we also announced in the creative space was Adobe Firefly, which is uh, you mentioned we were going to talk about AI, but this this is our text to image generative generation tool. You type in any phrase, you know, pink zebra driving a 1950s car on a desert highway, you get an image of that. And it's amazing. It's like magic. And so we had launched that, uh, the beta version of that a, a few weeks ago. It's really kind of taken the world by storm because again, it's another place where you could see how AI can help everybody be creative in a way that was very difficult before. So it's exciting that we think both of those are huge drivers for the for the creative space and on the document space, Acrobat remains as relevant as ever. It's one of our fastest growing products. There's over three, I think, three trillion PDFs in the world, right, that have been created. And, and the opportunity ahead for us is, again, using AI to unlock the value of all of that PDFs that are stored out there, right? There's, there's all those PDFs have lots of information. They're, they're locked away. How do we unlock that, understand it, help you understand it, give you summaries, interesting ways to interact with this. So the opportunity there on the innovation side the potential of uh, Acrobat and all the PDFs that are out there is really amazing. And the last business, we have three businesses, the creative side, the document side, and the digital marketing side. That one is is really interesting. That's really helping the, the uh, world's businesses get online and market and sell their products online. We started that 11 years ago when 
everyone wasn't online, but now everyone is. But you know, how do you track your visitors? How do you give them the offers offers that they want right at the time they're visiting your website and and thinking about that? And so the really cool work we're doing there is four years ago, we created this uh, customer data platform, a real-time customer data platform, which allows everyone to store their data of their customer interactions and then start running a bunch of AI on top of it to get insights about what are the things that people are going to do. And, and the really important thing that we provide is that it's real-time. So that's allowing you to get that offer out to them right at the millisecond that they are interested in hearing from you. And that's, a, you know, really helping these companies maximize their ROI through the, uh, the ability to merchandise through their websites. So that real-time customer data platform is absolutely another thing we think of as a growth driver for that digital experience, digital marketing business. And that's, that's really comprehensive enough. I'm going to make a couple of comments on the, uh, you know, the creative side, because, you know, over the last several years, I've always been amazed as to how strong the user growth has been uh, in creative. And I've always been very measured in my comments saying that, you know what, yeah, it's, it's really good, but, you know, it has to slow down just logically. But frankly, uh, with Adobe Express and a lot of work that I've uh, done with your team, um, I, I think, you know, your addressable market for people with who everybody wants to be a creator today. So I think Express has the ability to continue that double-digit user growth for some time. And one of the things I would you know, tell the listeners, if you have not looked at what Firefly can do, I encourage you to go to YouTube and, and look at some of the you know, user sessions from the most recent conference uh, that Adobe did. I mean, you will be blown away. It's, it's pretty impressive. So and sign up, for, and sign up for the beta, right? I mean, no need to go look at it on YouTube. It's so much fun to use. People spend hours creating images just because it's fun. I mean, it's really exciting. And when you think about you know, content creation, as you just said, there's more content being created now than ever before when you talk about user growth, right? I mean, there's just this constant desire and need to create content, whether you're a user that you want to share on social or you're a business and you want to market on social like you and you need new content. You need it refreshed. You need it different. It needs to be different every day, different every hour. So when we think about like the, the potential of the creative business, it seems unlimited going forward. No, I, I agree. So perhaps let's do, do a little bit of a deep dive on uh, AI and a bit of a history behind you know, what Adobe has done in the past and, uh, you know, innovation around that, a uh, little bit of history and a little bit of what you're working on right now. Yeah, absolutely. So we, as, as you know, we have, we've had a decade long investment in AI innovation. We brought AI based features and, and we, I think when people talk about AI, they talk about generative AI and we'll refer to it as non-generative AI, which is just sort of like the really smart AI. So we've had a lot of investment in both kinds of AI, but, and they're, they're across our products, right? Whether you're using Photoshop, we have features like neural filters, which allows you to change the sky gray to blue or change facial expressions from sad to happy, right? With just a slider. So again, pre-AI, that was a lot of painstaking pixel by pixel work you would do in Photoshop to achieve the same result with AI, understand what you want, you can use a slider, get the same way, get the same thing you were trying to do in minutes instead of months. So we've really looked at AI in, in the creative space as being this, this, this uh, efficiency creator, right, for our creatives. And, and they get paid by the things they create, right? And so the more they can create, the higher velocity of their creation, the more money they make. So they've really embraced AI in our tools. On the, on the document cloud side, we have this feature called liquid mode, and that, again, to this stored PDF problem, it allows to you to take any PDF, no matter when it was created, 
and let it uh, be reflowed so you can see it on a mobile phone. So it'll be reformatted by the AI. AI understands the structure of that document. So if you have an Excel table or a chart or a graph, it'll look great on a mobile phone. So the AI itself understands the document, understands what's inside the document, understands how to format it for whatever the screen size is. So that really using AI there in that space has is, is been pretty amazing. But when we think about like things like Firefly and 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 the way we're 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 developing technology in our creative space, yeah, you know, we've thought long and hard about the AI ethics side of it, and that's that group has been been under me for about four years. We 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 started on this journey to build this AI ethics program, and and it really started because when we when we were using AI in our products, we realized that AI is as good as the data it's trained on, right? And and when we look at the data our AI is trained on, if it happens to be trained on. If, if you're looking for like a lawyer and the, the AI was trained on uh, a series of images that are white men, and he asked for what a lawyer looks like, AI is going to think, uh, you must be a white man, right? And that's all the images you're going to get back. And so once we had that insight, and I personally had that insight because I did that search four years ago, and I said, I want someone that looks like me uh, or, or a woman. We said, we realized there, that was the gap. And the interesting part about that gap for the engineers is, is that in the old days, right, when you wrote software, it was determined what the result would be. You, it was a bunch of, I'll simplify, if-then statements. And so you knew the output of what it would happen. So it was never a surprise, right? So if your uh, software program was going to be biased, it was because you made it biased. There was no question. And that's the difference with AI. And that's what we realized we had to start, had to start testing for, is that it gets trained on a bunch of data, and then it does what it does. It's a black box. And so the unexpected results of what we started having to test for, we have to know that, oh, just because we didn't think there would be a bias in it, there could still be a bias in it. And so that's what we had to start thinking about in our EIX program. And so we, for like Firefly, for example, we really focused on these, these, these principles of, of training and testing as the first layer. And that training step, right, that's making sure you have good data because AI is only good as the data that it's trained on. So if you want a diverse set of results, your data set has to be diverse. That's 90% of the, the power of AIs in terms of reducing that bias is going to be from having a good, clean data set. So when we decided to train Firefly, we chose our stock data set. As I mentioned, we have this stock photography service, Adobe Stock. That, and that stock photography service, the, your listeners who don't know, is somebody has a stock, stock photo and they want to sell it. And we're a marketplace and you go to our website and you sell the photo and you get a cut and Adobe gets a cut and the person who buys it gets an image and they get to go use it. That's a stock photography website. So that's got hundreds of millions of assets on it. And when we decided to train our AI on that, we felt good about that for a couple of reasons. One is the people who are, who are using that, they already want their uh, images to be commercially viable, right? Because they want to sell them, which means they're not trying to get put inappropriate content in or weird content in. They want people to sell it. So that's helpful when you're thinking about creating good AI. That data is already coming in with the perspective of a, of a submitter who wants it to be good, good images. And the second thing we already do on stock is we have a content moderation team that looks at the images that come in and make sure there are, is, is nothing that's inappropriate because we don't want that on the, on, the, on the marketplace that we're selling these images to. So after you put those two together, you have a very good data set to train our AI on. We felt that is a great place to start for our Adobe Firefly or AI there. Second thing we said then is, all right, well, we got to test it. Because again, as I mentioned, you don't know, even though you may think this is great, there's still going to be a problem. So we have the AI ethics engineering team. They have a whole set of test suites. They run the AI against to say, well, it happens. 
you know, in this case, and what happens when you type in these words and what's the distribution of demographics that when you type in these search terms and they ask all these questions, see the results. If they have problems, they can go back right back to the engineering team and say, you know, fix it. And the way to fix it, there's a couple of ways, right? One is add more data, right? So if you're not getting any women in your lawyer search, you need to add women, or you could add filters on top, right? Those are the two ways. And the filters are like text prompt filtering. And so maybe you don't want children with guns showing up in the images. Well, you can just block the output of the AI so you won't ever show something that you don't want to show. So we have to think about that from both ways, both the training, can you add more data to make it less biased? And also, should we add some filters on top to make sure the output of Firefly is going to be commercially safe? And that was really our strategy was, we wanted Firefly to be designed to be commercially safe. We understood that you could go out there and train on every image and create any image, but that's not what our customers wanted, right? Our customers wanted us to provide something to them that they felt good about, that they felt like when they used it, when their kids used it, if you're an enterprise and you're going to use this as part of a marketing campaign, you're going to want that uh, database and that, and that AI to be generating work that you're proud of and you feel good about. And so yeah. when we think about the AI ethics program, that's sort of how we structured it for, for Firefly. I remember a few years ago, either three, four years ago, I looked at, you know, one of the demos of Sensei and uh, somebody's using Photoshop and, you know, they would, let's say, you know, they want a picture of a dog, for example, and they can go to stock and find it. And then the person who took that picture obviously get, you know, get, gets a cut from that particular use. Now, in the case of this generative AI using Firefly, if I was to write down, I need a picture of a dog and the system goes out and looks at, you know, four pictures and comes up with the answer that I like, how does that artist gets paid on that? And then eventually who gets to own that final image? Is that Adobe's property or is it the property of uh, the enterprise or the client that is using it? Yeah. So I think stock photography, that particular use case, so there's lots of use cases and it's a really fun time to be an IP lawyer, to think about questions like this, right? The, the copyright lawyers have never been more, in more demand than they are right now. But when you think about the use cases, there's, there's, I would say there's two that I think they're very different, right? One is the stock photographer, the person who's trying to sell things on the marketplace. And the second is maybe I'll, I'll refer to it as the creative, the artist who typically is in Photoshop and would still want to use a generative AI, right? So I think there are two different kinds of people and the answer probably means something different to them. So the stock photographer who's submitting images, right? It's not that they're not a creator creator because they're totally creating images, but their main goal is to sell photographs. Yep. So what their unique value is that they bring those successful ones is they understand what people want to buy. So they do a lot of market research and they understand like what are people are searching for on Google and where are the thing? And then they go take a picture of that. So if everyone's like, I need green apples, I need green apples, you know, they're on Google, they're looking for green apples. This guy's, the stock photographer's like, I'm going to go get myself a green apple picture and put it up there because I can make money, right? Yeah, so yeah, of thinking course. About, they're thinking about making money. So the stock soda photo site with AI, with Firefly or any other one works the same way. So you're going to say, I want a green apple, you the customer, person who's interested in using stock photography. And then the person creating that is going to say, I'm either going to take a picture of the green apple or I'm going to use Firefly to create a green apple and submit it. And we've already said, we'll take AI generated images into Firefly and it'll be treated just the way a regular image is in terms of you'll get your cut. If somebody wants that green apple picture, you know, they buy it and we share it. So no difference really in the business model from that person's perspective, because they're either using a camera or they're using um, uh, AI generated tools. But in either case, their output is a picture that sells. 
the question, the other question you're asking, I think it's quite different for the creative person, right? And they're in Photoshop, right? And they're saying to themselves, I want to create some great work. I'm going to start with Firefly. And I create that. And your question is, like, who owns that? Does Adobe own it? Does the creator own it, right? So it's an interesting question. Under the copyright law, right, the, the way copyright law works and has always worked, copyrights in the Constitution, copyright is there to protect the expression of an idea. So that means if you write the word book, that's an idea, it's not copyrightable. If you paint a book, a picture of a book, that's copyrightable. It is your expression of the idea of a book. That's copyrightable. There's a very big difference between the two of those things. If you have an invention, go patent it. That's also in the Constitution, right? That's how the, that's how the founders decided to divide up the, the way those work. So when you're typing in uh, pink zebra in a 1950s car on a desert highway, right? The output is going to be a specific shade of pink, a specific sized zebra, a, a kind of 1950s car. You didn't make any of those choices, right? You didn't express the choice. You just typed in the words and the AI made the expression. It chose the size of the zebra and the size of the car and what the car looks like, et cetera. So because of that, it is going to be very difficult to say that you express the idea, therefore you get the copyright because you Got didn't it. the expression. And in the copyright law today, it actually says you have to have human expression. So there's like two reasons why this is going to be difficult for the artist in, who's just using AI to create a work to get a copyright in the end result. Now, what we do believe is that you will be able to add your own proprietary expression to it in a Photoshop. So you create your image in Firefly and then you're like, oh, that's a silly zebra, not enough stripes, too many stripes. I don't like the car. You change it. Now you put your expression in. I get it. I and get you'll it. get that copyright in the end. Yeah. No, that, that's very interesting. And, and again, I have thought about this quite a bit because, you know, when I was listening to the, the um, you know, to the uh, presentation a few weeks ago, I think it was very clear to me in one way. And please tell me if I'm not thinking it the right way. If I am an artist or if I'm any company for that matter that is going to commercial using images for any commercial use, any digital content, if I just go on web and create something using an open source AI tools, that particular you know software is trained on freely uh, attained images and I probably may be uh, you know, infringing on some kind of law somewhere. But if I use you know, Adobe's uh, database or Adobe's uh, images, I'm probably okay because I'm paying you and you're paying somebody else and you know I, it should be fine from from my side. Am I right in thinking about it or uh, or, or or you know there is, there is more nu legal nuances to it. Yeah, there's so many legal nuances. Um but you are right in how you're thinking about it. So we designed it. I, I think it's the way we talk about this is important. We designed the first model of Firefly to be commercially safe. As I mentioned, we understood that there was a market for people who wanted to do the right, in their minds, do that, that right thing. Make sure that they have a data set that is properly licensed. Now, copyright has a fair use exception. And that's what a lot of companies who are training on the web are saying. Like, we believe this fair use exception allows us, gives us the legal permission to train on whatever is out there without asking anyone's rights because we're not competing with their work, is the story. We are just using them to train an AI. And that Therefore, it's fair use. So that's the legal theory. Now, we there are cases going on right now that are litigating this question of whether fair use is going to be the right. But when we looked at the issue, when we said we want to make, we thought our customers are not interested in lawsuits, right? They want certainty. And the way we can give them certainty is to use the stock database as the primary way we're training it. 
for the reasons I said, right? Because because we are licensed. Those are people who are submitting those to us and we're licensed. We're also looking at public domain work, like from museums and places where the copyrights expired and other places that have truly open licenses to make sure we have this data set of appropriately and clearly um, attainable assets that we can train our AI on that people could then, as you say, feel good that the result of this is going to be respectful of everyone's rights, no matter how the law comes out. Now, the other part of that that makes it interesting for Firefly, but good to know when people use it, is we also keep IP and brand out. Because of the way we're choosing these assets, you're not making Mickey Mouse in Firefly because we're not training it on Mickey Mouse. We didn't go scrape Disney's website to get a bunch of Mickey Mouse images and then train it. So if you type Mickey Mouse into Firefly, you're not going to get Mickey Mouse. I don't know what you get. Actually, you probably get some sort of mouse. And that's important because, again, we know the brands care a lot about you know their protection of their IP, and they don't want people out there monetizing their IP through uh, through this generated work. And so this, again, this this tool is good for the enterprises who care about IP and brand protection because it's not trained on that. You know, the, the, as, as I was listening to this presentation a few weeks ago, uh, there was a question that came to my mind was, you know, you have this particular tag in the image that if the artist doesn't want this to be part of, a, you know, the algorithm or the training mechanism, they can opt out of it. And I was wondering, why would anybody opt out of it? Do you have cases when people opt, of, opt out of it? And why do they do that? Yeah, there's been a lot of, um, as you know, the creative community is is our community. And there's been a lot of angst about people training on their work and then creating work that looks like their work without them getting paid. So if you're an artist, particular style, and you get trained on it, and then someone's generating in that style, and they're saying, that's my livelihood. So we understood that as a theory. So what we wanted to do is be sort of creator forward and give them the option to not be trained. And so with that is it's a tag that goes along with the with their image that they can add through a technology that we call content credentials. And if they add that to their image, then anyone who's going to respect that tag can see it and not train. And now we're working with other industry partners who are doing that kind of crawling to have them also respect that tag or declare if they're going to or not. So every artist can feel like, if I don't want to be part of this, I don't have to be. Now, on the other side, we're trying to actively develop ways to make sure people get compensated, that there's a the economic pie of AI isn't something that reduces people's ability to get an economic return on their creation, but increases it. So we've thought about ideas like, how do we help you monetize your style? Let's flip that on your its head. You've got a style. People want to create things in your style. Well, why don't we allow you to create a plugin to Firefly that's your style and people could subscribe to it? And they can say, if Anurag has got, a, I want everything to look like him, his style, I pay him $2 a month and now I can do it and I do it in a clean way. And I think sometimes we talk about this thing as a, you know, maybe when Napster was around and there was just a way to do everything, but you kind of felt like maybe I was stealing from people, right? Artists and, you know, you kind of felt that way. And then Apple came with iTunes and said, it's 99 cents and you can feel good about the song you're buying, right? And we sort of think about that the same way as like giving people this option to say, hey, these people are the ones who are creating the work that, that you're enjoying. Here's a way to make sure that, that we're doing the right thing by them. You know, this is very interesting. And, you know, can you, like, for example, if I 
have a particular style of image and then Lucas has one and Andrew has one. And then, you know, is it possible that you can tell the artist that, okay, in this generative AI image, you know, 15% comes from you and 25% comes from somebody else? Because I would assume that the uh, the the image the, in the the final image and any generative function is a combination of multiple, if not you know dozens, if it could be even more uh, you know content uh, providers. So, uh, uh, is there a way to monetize that? I think there's two different again. There's two different uh, scenarios you're talking about. One is almost more in the stock photography. So it's all the people who are getting trained in in on the database. And the question is, mm-hmm. the question you're asking is like, I want a tree in a forest. You get a tree in a forest. And what was the contribution? of everybody's images to that, right? And in that question, you know, the math is hard. So AI, the way AI works, right, it's a, it's a black box, it's a bunch of data and it gets trained on, it's a feedback loop. And as it gets better at picking, as creating an image of a cat, it changes the weights, just like your brain has, has chemical weights, it has digital weights, yep. it changes them until it gets the right answer and it freezes them, that's what you use. Hard to know exactly like what is the reason it created that dog, which of the, hundreds of millions of assets was the tipping point. Hard to know. So it's it's a hard math problem. I mean, and so we haven't we haven't solved it. No one solved it, but we're interested in figuring out ways of saying uh, other ways, proxies, right, for the value of the contribution. Maybe it's like what assets are selling the best on stock are probably the most likely to contribute to this image. Or maybe we can use AI. One of our theories is maybe we can use AI to analyze an image and and give us that proportion that you talked about and say, analyze this image, what do you think? So there's other ways to think about it. It's probably not going to be traceability back to the use of the image, because as you clearly know, that's not how AI works. So it's we have to think of some inferential way, but we're committed to it. We've said that we want to figure out ways to compensate those people. The second question that you asked was about, like, it's my style and can I get rewarded for it? And that really comes up, the way we think that's more interesting is someone actually types in the phrase, and this is what they're doing now, I want to create a picture in the style of you know, Dana Rao. Well, we can see what they're typing. And what we can do at that point is say, hey, if you really want a, a picture in that style, Dana's got a style subscription service. You should subscribe to it, and then we'll let you generate that image. No, that's very interesting. You know, I have another um, a question that is very uh, similar to this is all these randomly generated AI images, you know, they, they have the potential to do a lot of damage from, you know, starting wars to breaking marriages. How does someone, uh, you know, fix that issue? Like, how do I know just by looking at an image is this is something that's real or fake? Is there any technology that is uh, that your team is working on or anybody else is working on that can fix that? Absolutely. Uh, we have four years ago, you know, like similar around when we started our AI ethics program, we started this program we call this initiative, we call the Content Authenticity Initiative. And why we started that was for this reason, because we, as I mentioned, we've been in the AI creation business for over 10 years and we knew where this was going. We knew it was going to be very easy using AI tools to create audio, video, images that look real um, and are designed to mislead. and. And as soon as people can't trust what they see, they're going to, first, they're going to be deceived into thinking, you know, Anurag told them to spend $5 million on something and he didn't really mean it. <laughs> that's the first problem. And then the second time is the next time you ask someone to do something for you, they're going to go, that's probably not you. And they're not going to believe anything they see in here. So that's a problem for, for democracies when you think about this, right? If people stop believing that President Biden's video telling everybody about something 
is actually true, how do we communicate with each other about the facts that are going on? So the technology that we came up with, I mentioned it briefly when we talked about that do not train tag, because it, it is part of this solution. It's called content credentials. And what it does is it captures the metadata about an image as you're creating it. So if you're in Photoshop and you're creating an image and you turn on content credentials, because it's opt-in, it'll capture you know, who you are, where you took the picture, where, where it was taken, and all the edits you're making to it. And then that gets published with the image. And what's important to think about in this solution, this is not a solution that's designed to catch the bad guys. So if you're creating a bunch of misinformation, you're creating a bunch of misinformation. What this solution is trying to solve the problem is how do we let the good guys tell the truth and be believed? How do we let you authenticate yourself? And that's what we're solving. We're providing you an authenticity technology, these content credentials, that when you see it, you can say, oh, I see this. I see what happened to this image. He changed the color of the sky. He moved a tree around, but it really was President Biden. I can see that from the metadata and I can Got believe it. So there'll be a little icon there. Now, what's exciting about that is we invented this technology four years ago, but we wanted to, this is not an Adobe problem. It's not an Adobe solution. We made it an open standard. It's an open standard. It's on version 1.3 already. And we have over a thousand members who've joined this initiative. And there are technology companies like Microsoft and Qualcomm. And there's hundreds of media companies like the New York Times, AP, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, BBC. They've all joined because it is so important to have the ability to establish authenticity in the audio and video and images that they're creating. If people don't believe in their content, no one's going to read their content. So it's mission critical to establish authenticity. So we have over a thousand companies who've joined. People are starting to implement technology into their workflows. So when you see images and videos, you have a way to see what you can believe. We see there's a risk by governments, uh, you know, around the world to, you know, ban AI images because of this reason. Maybe around elections. Maybe around. Like, I, I, you know, again, the, to me, uh, companies are banning the use of AI-generated content for writing. I mean, this is pretty phenomenal uh, development, uh, you know, the stuff that I have seen uh, that your team has put out. But I, I just am surprised at the, uh, you know, the lack of openness from certain companies or certain governments and, you know, trying to shut it down completely. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, the genie is not going back in the bottle. Right. As people would like this AI to stop, it's not going to stop. It's, it's exciting. It's transformational. It's, you know, the difference between where we were before mobile phones happened and where we were after mobile phones, before internet, after internet. This is a before AI, after AI moment. And we're right in the middle. It's not, it's not going to happen. So what we all need to do is come together and think about what is the right way of working in this new world we're living in. And that's what we're excited about in this initiative, right? Again, we want to be able to establish this, this chain of trust, right? From capture to publication. So I mentioned technology companies, but we've had camera companies like Nikon and Canon who said, we're going to build this right into the camera, right? We're going to, when you take the picture, it's going to start from the capture. Then it goes to Photoshop. Then it goes to the Wall Street Journal. And then it goes to you. And you're going to be able to see and, and, and understand that this, this is something I can believe. That concept of authenticity has to be the way to solve the problem, even if you're writing papers, right? We're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to catch someone who used AI. Right now, you're going to be able to, but you're not going to be able to forever. What you're going to need to do is have them prove 
that what they wrote was by them. That's the only path forward, is when you want to prove that a human did something, you're going to need a way to do it. So every Firefly image that's, that's being created has content credentials on by default. So you will always know a Firefly image is an AI image because that's what we set it to because we believe in the transparency of making sure people know when something's an AI-generated work and when it's not. I think that's going to have to be the path forward is transparency as the solution. Great. And you know, we're almost running out of time. So let me ask you one final question. Yep. You know, a lot of creators um, would be thinking that, you know, something like this can basically take their livelihood away. You know, what can, what, what comfort can you offer them, you know, especially for a lot of people who are trying to get into this business? I think that every time we've added AI tools so far into our process, people really adopted it. And I'm speaking about the creatives right now. And that's because we look at AI as the front door to creativity. It gets you 50%, if you're truly a creative, 50% of the way to where you want to go. So something that could, would have taken you months to do in Photoshop, you know, changing the image, adding a moon, taking away a moon, creating a scene, you're doing it in seconds now. This final version is still not your vision. The thing that's not getting replaced is the creativity, the vision that you brought to the work. So you still have to take that image and make it what you want it to be. So for the creative professionals who are out there thinking about like, is this going to replace me? Your vision, your dream of what you want to make, it's still going to be you who makes it and it's still going to be your unique voice. What's exciting about this for the rest of us, and I'm not going to put you in my bucket, but at least me, I'm not visually creative. So I'm really excited that I'm now able to participate in visual creativity in a way that I couldn't have since I was five years old and had a crayon. I am now back in it. I can type in words. I can make cool illustrations. And I'm excited. And maybe I only I'm the only one who's excited to see my creations, but it makes me feel good again. Now, that's excellent. Dana, thank you so much. And uh, this was very exciting. I learned quite a bit. And uh, hopefully we can get you back uh, in the next uh, few months again to see where where things are progressing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.